Reader's Digest uh, told of a catering manager who was planning a party for a young couple and their new baby. And the manager didn't know a lot of the details, but as she met with the young couple, she thought she would pay a compliment to the mother when she first saw her. And she said, man, you look, you look like you've lost most of your pregnancy weight. Good job. Thanks, came the icy reply. Oh, we adopted. <laughs> Any of you ever stick your foot in your mouth before? As James says, we all stumble in many ways in what we say and the way we use our mouth. Maybe you've heard of the young man, another example, working at a grocery store in the produce section. And his first day on the job, an elderly lady came to him and said she wanted to buy half a head of lettuce. Well, he tried to tell her that he wasn't allowed to sell half a head of lettuce, and it was all or nothing, but she was very persistent. And finally, he said, I'll have to go and talk to the manager and back. And so he went to the rear of the store to talk to the manager and didn't notice that the woman was right behind him following him. And he said to the manager, there's a stupid old lady who wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. What should I tell her? <laughs> Seeing the horrified look on the manager's face, he turned around quickly and added, and this nice lady wants to buy the other half of the head of lettuce. <laughs> Later in the day, the manager congratulated the young man for his quick thinking and, and solving that problem. And he, he asked the, the boy, where are you from? And the kid said, I'm from uh, Toronto, Canada, home of beautiful hockey players and ugly women. The manager looked at him and said, my wife is from Toronto. <laughs> the boy replied without missing a beat, oh, what team does she play for? <laughs> Don't you wish you could think that fast? We could probably spend hours, if not days, giving examples from our own mouths how we have gotten into trouble by things we have said. And we can all relate to what James tells us here in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, this section has no shortage of illustrations, examples, and metaphors of the universal problem of foot and mouth disease. And, you know, we may chuckle when someone else does it, but when we do it, it's not nearly so funny, is it? It's well been said, as you go through life, you're going to have many opportunities to keep your mouth shut. Take advantage of all of them. It's also been said it takes two years to learn to talk and 60 years to learn to be quiet. That's true, isn't it? James has a lot to say about our words and our speech, and actually every chapter of James, he mentions sinful speech to some degree, but chapter 3, the first 12 verses, is the most concentrated teaching in the entire Bible about our words and our speech. As you recall, the end of James chapter 2 has been emphasizing that words aren't enough. There has to be works to go along with the words. But James also tells us the words are not unimportant. In fact, both words and works are evidence of where our heart is. And when genuine faith is present, it results in a transformed life and transformed speech. So one proof of our salvation is that our speech has been transformed. I mean, James has already told us, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. So if God has changed our hearts through salvation, conversion, the new birth, that saving faith that he has given us will show itself in a life of good deeds. Yes. But now he moves from the generality of good deeds to the specifics of the words we speak. 
Genuine faith produces good works even in our speech. You know, if we turn to Paul, in building his case that all of us have sinned, he zeroes in on the sins of the tongues there in Romans. He says their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, wouldn't it be nice if our salvation resulted in a total makeover of our mouth and our speech and what came out of our mouths? And even though we become new creatures in Christ, we still carry with us that old nature of the flesh, of sin, which wars against the spirit. And the tongue is probably one of the major battlegrounds in this war. But James tells us to become godly people, we must fight daily to use our tongue for good. For God's glory and not for evil. And if you're anything like me, we all tend to justify ourselves in our speech by comparing ourselves to those who are worse than we are, right? We say, in comparison with how they talk, I'm okay. But James insists that we open our eyes to how serious the problem that we have is. And I find it interesting that he does not give us any advice here in this section on how to control our tongue. He leaves us reeling from his portrait of how huge the problem is that we have with our speech and our tongue. And so if you're able, why don't you stand with me as we read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning. James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning admitting that we are in need of your control over our tongues and our speech. Father, we pray that as you speak to us from your word this morning, that we would see uh, the problem that we each battle with daily. And Father, that we would battle it daily because we want to be used of you. We want to glorify you, not just with our words, but through our words. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's a, a whole lot in this passage. We could spend a whole lot of time on it. One, one uh, pastor who I read, he spent seven weeks on these 12 verses 
Uh, we're not going to do that today. We're going to go through all 12 of these verses. But James gives us at least four truths here that we have to recognize before we can begin to control our tongues, before we can begin to use them for, for good and for God's glory. And the first one is, you know, we are accountable for what we say. And if you were to list the top three most dangerous occupations, you, know, you might think of soldiers or loggers or, or professional fishermen or firemen or whatever the case might be. But, but spiritually speaking, James want us, wants us to see the ones in the most danger are those speaking before others as teachers of God's word. Uh, a Bible teacher's words can do tremendous good or terrible evil. And James says there's stricter judgment by God because of it. You know, the, the, the Jewish Christian communities that James is writing to apparently had some self-appointed teachers. And in the Jewish synagogues that they came out of, rabbis were highly respected. And they often, uh, the office of a rabbi was one that, that parents would covet for their sons. As a matter of fact, according to Jewish literature, if your parents and the rabbi were kidnapped, the son's responsibility was to first free the rabbi before his parents. Okay, that's the kind of respect they had. And, you know, to some degree, proper respect was good because they were expounding on the sacred scriptures. But it's wrong to give men the honor that God alone deserves. And Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders on this account when he said they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. You know, there's, back then and even today, there is an inherent uh, prestige in becoming a teacher because presumably the teacher knows more than the students, right? And that means in some way the students are to look up to the teachers. Because of that, there's the danger that some will take upon themselves the office of a teacher for the wrong reasons or because of their own pride. And James' point is that no one should take the role of a teacher unless God has called them to it. Because teachers will incur a stricter judgment, he says. In other words, those who teach God's word will be more accountable because our words affect more people. And any time we teach, we should keep in mind the serious fact that we will stand before the Lord to give an account. And verse 2 further explains verse 1, and James includes himself when he says, for we all stumble in many ways. If you're a teacher, you know you've stumbled. You've messed up. You've said something wrong, whatever the case. But the fact is, we're all prone to the sins of the tongue. And if you say you are without sin with your tongue, uh, you're a liar, Okay. But teachers talk more, right? And the more we talk, the more likely we are to be unable to control our tongue. Thus, teachers expose themselves to a greater judgment, James says. Yes, we all sin with our speech, but the more we talk, the more likely we are to sin. And the more people we talk to, the more trouble we get in. And then James zeroes in on saying there in verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And perfect there doesn't mean sinless. We've talked about that. It means mature. Uh, we can never achieve sinless perfection in this life, but we can grow in our spiritual maturity, right? And one important gauge of our spiritual health and life is our speech, what comes out of our mouth. 
And one way to tame our tongue is to recognize that, yes, we will all be held accountable for the words we say. Teacher or non-teacher, doesn't matter. We will all be held accountable. And our speech either validates that we are a true believer in Christ or it reveals that we do not know him. And if we sin with our speech, we need to ask forgiveness, right? And the forgiveness of those we've sinned against. True believers, those who have been changed by God from the inside out, have this sense of being accountable for their words, all their words. And, you know, I I think it goes beyond just the verbal things that come out of our mouth as well, although that is a big part of it. But uh, much of our speech, if you will, much of our words never comes out of our mouth. If you ever think of it this way, uh, can you think of things without doing it in words? We can't imagine without painting a word picture in our mind. And so our speech problem goes deeper than just our tongue, doesn't it? It goes to our heart. It goes to our mind. And we'll talk about that. But secondly, we have to recognize the tongue's power for good and for evil. Okay? And in verses 3 through 5, James uses a couple of analogies here to make the point that the tongue, although small, is very mighty. And he gives the example of a horse's bit and the rudder on a boat. You know, a bit is relatively small compared to the weight of a horse. But when you put it in a horse's mouth and train that horse, you can control that horse completely. So we have to learn to say, this is really bad, but we have to learn to say woe to our words, right? Before we speak them too hastily. The horse doesn't bridle itself. It doesn't put the bit in its own mouth. No. And no human can tame the wild tongue by mere human effort and natural power either. It's only by God's power that the wild mustang of our mouth can be broken and bridled. We have to tame, restrain, rein back our voice, or it can do great damage. You know, a a wild horse that is broken and brought under control has great usefulness. But an untamed tongue is like that runaway stallion. So we have to hold our horses when it comes to our speech. Think about what we're going to say. And the same is true of a rudder of a ship. You know, it's relatively small compared to the size of the ship, but a pilot with his hand on the wheel or the tiller can maneuver a a mammoth ship even in strong winds. Uh, For example, the Queen Elizabeth is said to have weighed 83,673 gross tons. That's pretty large, right? The rudder of the Queen Elizabeth weighed less than one-fifth of one percent of the total weight. And yet that rudder, when turned, controlled the direction of the ship. And, and, you know, when you think about it, it seems incredible that a man can control so vast a vessel with such a relatively small device. Yet that's the way it works. We should never misjudge the power of the tongue even though it's, you know, just a couple, three ounces, I've never weighed one, but it's not very much compared to our overall body weight. But don't, mis- uh, don't misjudge the power that your tongue has. You know, in World War II, the phrase was set off in loose lips sink ships, right? A reminder of the power of the tongue. In the church, loose lips shoot down individuals, destroy relationships, one tongue can shipwreck an entire church. So, so don't underestimate your tongue and your speech. If you do, you'll never be able to tame it. 
And, and James' point of comparison here, I, I think, isn't so much the matter of control. I mean, the, the tongue doesn't really control the body. But his point is the, the, the influence of such a small part of the body. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It does, doesn't it? Uh, James is once again telling us, don't underestimate the power of your speech. And he may also be using a comparison in the sense of influencing the direction your life goes. If you control your tongue, it can, it can direct your whole life into what is acceptable in God's sight. If you don't control your tongue, it'll get you in trouble, won't it? The control of the tongue is more than an evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the means to spiritual maturity. You know, to work properly and accomplish good things, both the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship must be under the control of a hand that knows how to use it. In the same way, the tongue must overcome the forces of the flesh and be under God's own control if it's to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. You know, James, uh, half-brother of Jesus, steeped in the Old Testament, knowing what the prophets and Moses had written, he knew the Old Testament has a lot to say about the power of the tongue, for good and for evil. Uh, Proverbs twelve eighteen: there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Imagine all of us were carrying into church today an unsheathed, razor-sharp, two-edged sword. How many injuries do you think there would be? Well, the fact is, we have that sword built into our mouths, and tongues and speech can cut and injure deeply. And so James tells us we have to use care. We need to bring healing with our tongues, not hurting. Uh, Proverbs has many other references to the tongue, and I encourage you, you know, read through Proverbs on an ongoing basis. There, there's a lot of good stuff. For example, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bone. Does that describe your speech? Does that describe my speech? I, I, if we'd all read the Proverbs frequently, pay attention to the wisdom, eh, we would be becoming more of a source of sweetness and healings in our homes, in our schools, in our churches, neighborhoods, and communities. And James wants us to recognize that, yes, we are going to be held accountable for how we use our tongues, especially those of us who teach God's word. But he wants us to recognize the power of the tongue can be used for good or for evil. So we need to be careful. We need to use it wisely. But then what does he say in verses 5 through 8? He tells us the tongue is untamable. Oh, well then what's the point, right? No. James uses a couple more word pictures here for comparison and contrast. Uh, he uses a forest fire and tamed animals. You know, we are all aware of the potential danger and damage of forest fires, correct? All it takes is one spark, all it takes is one lightning bolt, and thousands of acres can be destroyed. I mean, under control, fire is a great thing. It's useful. Out of control, it's frightening and devastating. And fire has that capacity to reproduce itself in an almost unlimited way as long as it has fuel to burn. If there's sufficient fuel and enough oxygen to sustain combustion, it will burn indefinitely. You know, if I were to ask you what are the most famous fires in the United States history, somebody would probably say, well, the October 8th, 1871 fire in Chicago, right? Where presumably Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over 
a lamp. And before that fire was contained, 17,500 buildings were burned to the ground. 125,000 people were left homeless, and some 250 people died. But that wasn't even the worst fire that day in the United States. In the Wisconsin countryside, a fire burned at the same time that left more than 1,500 dead, the most fatalities by fire in U.S. history. The Great Peshtigo Fire burned two towns completely, scorched 400 square miles of forest. It was reported that a convection column, a whirling chimney of superheated air generated by the fire, suddenly broke through the blanket of heavier, smoke-laden air into the colder air above, thus creating a huge updraft that led to a fire tornado and whirlwinds of unimaginable unimaginable proportions and temperatures. An eyewitness put it this way, the menacing crimson reflection on the western sky was rapidly increasing in size and in intensity. In the midst of the unnatural calm and silence reigning around, the strange and terrible noise of fire, strange and unknown thunderous voice of nature, the wind was a forerunner of the tempest, increasing in violence, sweeping planks, gate, and fencing away into space. What does James say? The tongue is a fire. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And scholars debate on how to translate, how to punctuate that verse. But no matter how you do it, the point of it is very clear, is it not? The tongue is a deadly powerful source of evil. If we don't use our tongues with great caution, we're like spiritual arsonists. We're, we're lighting careless fires wherever we go that cause widespread destruction. And, and James says the one who is careless with his words, careless with his tongue, is himself the first to be defiled. An unchecked tongue, he says, is the very world of iniquity. It defiles the entire body. And I think this is referring back to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where James said, True religion requires bridling the tongue and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Like a spark that lights a fire, the tongue not only defiles us, but it sets on fire the course of our life. And the idea here is the wheel of life, okay, as life goes on. If you have a careless tongue, it damages your entire life. And then James goes even deeper and further and identifies the ultimate source of the problem. And he says, it is set on fire by what? Hell. And this is a, translates the Greek word Gehenna, a transliteration of two Hebrew words meaning Valley of Hinnom. Just outside the gates of Jerusalem was where the Jewish worshipers of Moloch used to burn their children as sacrifices to appease that pagan god. It later became the, the place to burn trash, the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And the only other New Testament writer that uses this word is Jesus himself, and he uses it 11 times to refer to that place of eternal torment. Well, James is saying... Our tongues, when used for evil, are being set on fire by Satan himself, by the very fires of hell. And, you know, we all shrink back from, from things like child abuse and murder, and they're satanically depraved. We would never touch those things. And yet, how often do we tolerate gossip 
and slander and deceit and half-truths and sarcastic put-downs and cutting remarks and other sins of the tongue as if they're no big deal. James says they come from hell. All such sins have their origin in the pit of hell. They defile the one who commits them and they destroy those they speak against. As believers in Jesus Christ, as those that claim to have faith in him, we have to confront these sins in ourselves head on. And once again, don't be thinking, man, I wish my husband was here to hear this. He really, or wife or whoever. No, we need to hear it. And James goes on to use the analogy from the animal world. And we've all been to SeaWorld or been to circuses. We've seen trained whales and dolphins and seals and elephants and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, right? We've all seen that. But James says there's one beast that cannot be tamed, and that is the human tongue. He says it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Restless. It's always there. It never sleeps. It's always eager to speak. Uh, being full of deadly poison, what does that mean? Well, we should handle our tongue as cautiously as we would carry around a vial of anthrax, right? Like venom on the tip of an arrow are the words on the tips of our tongue. And yes, mankind can, can uh, tame cobras to dance to a flute, but we cannot tame the deadly snake that is in our mouth that can harm and kill those around us. But note, James doesn't say the tongue is untamable. No, that's not what he said. He says no one can tame it. Humanly, it's impossible. Aren't you glad that God can tame it? James doesn't state that God can, can uh, contain and, and help us control our tongue here because he, I think he wants us to see and get a clear view of the horrible monster that we have to battle with on a, uh, on a daily basis. But when the Holy Spirit controls your heart, moment by moment, as you live for Christ, moment by moment, over time the fruit of the Spirit appears, including in your speech. I mean, some of the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, Aren't all of those involved with speech? Yes. To tame the tongue, we can't do it, but God can. And so we must walk daily by the Spirit. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Ultimately, an evil tongue is the tool of an evil heart. And that's James' final point here in this passage. I mean, the tongue is so inconsistent. And that's because... Its root is inconsistent. He points out a contradiction that he no doubt had seen in himself and seen in others. I mean, how often do you say praise the Lord in one, vo in one breath and in the very next you're, you, know, you say something evil about somebody else? Is it just me or do you do that at times? I mean, we sit in church, we sing hymns to God, and no sooner do we walk out the door or we're on the drive home and we say to our, our, our wife or husband, did you see so-and-so? Man, she makes me so sick. What a hypocrite. Do you know what she did? And on and on we go. What does James say? He gets very direct, does he not? My brother, these things ought not to be this way. And then he points out that what often happens among Christians is contrary to all of nature. I mean, the same spring does not and cannot send out fresh water one second and bitter water the next. No. And he asks rhetorically, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt produce fresh. You know, the solution to a bad apple tree 
to an apple tree that does not produce apple. The solution is not to take a bucket of good apples, apples you bought at the store and a nail gun and go attach these apples to that tree, right? It might look good from a distance, but it has not addressed the fundamental problem. We can't dress up the outside with artificial fruit and not deal with the root of the problem. With our speech, sheer willpower is not enough. Behavior modification is not enough if there's no inner spiritual change. You know, the apples we nailed to the tree, what's going to happen to them? They're going to rot. They aren't attached to the life-giving resources of the tree. More importantly, what kind of apples is that tree going to have the next year? Probably none. Nothing, there's no organic change that has happened within the tree to produce them. And I'm convinced that, that much of what we do in an attempt to change our speech is nothing more than apple nailing. Okay? Our, our problem is not other people. Our problem is not our situation or our circumstance. Our problem is our heart. And James' point is the same that Jesus made in Matthew 12. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He also said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. You know, the solution to this is not to cut out our tongue. It is not to sew up our lips. No. The mouth is simply the vehicle that vents what's already in the heart and mind. If there's bitterness in the heart, there's going to be bitterness coming from the mouth. If there's a critical spirit in the heart, it's going to come forth in the words that burst forth from the mouth. That's why Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So how is it that our mouths can bless God in prayer, and seconds later we use the same mouth just to crucify somebody, even a fellow Christian? How can we be singing thanks to God for the family of God on Sunday, but at home we express anything but appreciation for our earthly family? The same mouths that sing holy, holy, holy are unholy. Have you ever thought how terribly embarrassing life would be if there was an open line? Well, this may be true for some of us. An open line between your thoughts and your mouth. Uh, Everything you thought you blurted out loud. How would that go? Instead of your plight, I'm pleased to meet you, you'd say, I don't care who you are. (laughs) After listening to someone drone on about something, instead of that's very interesting, you blurt out, how can I get away from this boring buffoon? It's not just me, right? Those thoughts do. And no, I'm not uh, suggesting that we abandon politeness. No. I'm not suggesting we all become brutally blunt like that. No. I'm pointing out that even if you control your tongue, you still have a heart issue, right? If you want to tame the tongue, the place to start is with the heart. Therefore, every day, every moment, we have to take every thought captive. We have to walk daily under the control of the Holy Spirit. We need to be renewing our minds daily with Scripture. We need to be meditating on things like Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome, no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Think about your words you spoke this week. Think about your speech that you've done this week. Did it give grace to those who heard you? I mean, James isn't trying to beat us up for being imperfect. That's not his point. He wants us to see how inconsistent it is for us as Christians 
to be this way. He wants us to see our hypocrisy so we will come once again to our Lord and Savior, whose grace and power helps us as repentant sinners. But we have to see that we have a problem before we'll do anything to fix it. So Rabbi who's lectured throughout the country on, on the powerful and often negative impact that words have. And, and he asks his audience if they can go for 24 hours without saying any unkind words about or to anybody. And, and he says this, Invariably, a minority of listeners raise their hand signifying yes. Some laugh and quite a large number call out no. He goes on, Those who can't answer yes must recognize you have a serious problem. If you cannot go for 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, you have lost control over your tongue. And he encourages his audience to monitor their conversation for 48 hours. He says, note on a piece of paper every time you say something negative about someone who is not present. Record when others do so as well as your reactions when that happens. Do you try to silence the speaker or do you ask for more details? And then he adds, to ensure the test accuracy, make no effort to change the content of your conversation throughout the two-day period, and do not try to be kinder than usual in assessing another's character and actions. Most of us who take this test are unpleasantly surprised. Would you be surprised? You know, that may not be a bad idea for us to try, but why is it that James doesn't give us any helpful tips here on how to control our tongue? I mean, he beats it into us. Our, our speech, our words, have, uh, we have to take them under control. But he doesn't tell us how to do it. Well, maybe it's because most of us are in denial about the magnitude of our problem. Yeah, they're worse than I am. What do I have to worry about? No. The first step in dealing with the problem is to acknowledge we have a problem. And James points that out clearly. We have a tool of Satan within our mouths. That's what he says. How's that an encouraging end for a sermon? But, you know, there's actually encouraging notes throughout these images that James uses here. His illustrations show us our hopelessness. But each one also has hope built into it. What do I mean? The tongue cannot be tamed by, hu by the human race. No. But as Jesus said, what's impossible with man is what? Possible with God. The horse cannot bridle itself, but its master can. The ship cannot steer itself through stormy seas, but the captain can. And Jesus is our captain. He is the anchor of our souls. Uh, the fire that burns from hell can be overcome by a greater power from heaven, transforming the tongues of even sinful men and women like you and like me. You remember Peter, right? He had a fiery tongue. It caused him to get into trouble at times. Jesus even once said to him, get behind me, Satan, right? But on the day of Pentecost, another fire from heaven came down like tongues of fire and settled above him and the others. And as you know, Peter went out and he preached the gospel with the Holy Spirit's power. For Peter, a charter member of the Foot and Mouth Club, the right kind of fiery tongue now empowered him to preach the gospel powerfully, to start a fire that would eventually set the world ablaze. And so for every one of us, there can be healing, there can be help in sincerely and humbly confessing our sin to our God, yes, and to those we sin against. And yet it's so hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong to speak that way. That was sin. By God's grace, I've repented. But I'm sorry for any hurt or pain I caused you. Will you please forgive me? But we need to do that. Lehman Strauss considers this passage to be a key, uh, to, be a key to the solution of most of the ills in church life today. 
and I'd agree. And add that it's key to most of the problems in our homes as well. You know, as we go from here, we know it's fire season. Things are tender, dry, not only outside, but they're dry within your family, within your church, within your neighborhood, within your community, and your tongue is, is a fire. So be careful. Ask God to tame your tongue, to use it for all of our good, to use it for his glory. And don't be content with just an external religiosity and an unchanged heart. That does nothing. Uh, don't just try to speak less or less quickly, although that's a good start, but, but take your sinful thoughts captive and, and be transforming them by the renewing of your mind from God's word. So the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's a prayer we should be praying. That's Psalm 143, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. We must guard our hearts and guard our lips, and we need God's help to do that. You know, as you know, you don't go to the ocean and expect a, a drink of nice, clean, fresh mountain water, right? No. If one of your fountains or faucets puts out bitter water, the solution isn't go to the store and buy a new faucet, right? That doesn't do a thing. What is filling the source determines what comes out of the faucet. What is filling the source in us determines what comes out the mouth. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another, speaking, got it? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, if they're filling your heart and your life and your mind, they will come out your lips. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then Psalm 71, 8. Is this our prayer? Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. May God, in his amazing grace, be kind enough to transform our hearts more by the renewing of our thinking more, enabling us to guard our hearts more so that we can guard our lips more, that we would be filled with his spirit more and have his word dwell more richly within us, and that the words of our mouth would be more pleasing in his sight, giving more grace to others, giving God more glory. As we do that, he gives us more joy in living for him. Father, we thank you that you can control our tongues. We admit we sin frequently, daily, by misusing our speech. Father, you have given us the gift of thought and speech. You have given us the job of speaking the gospel. And yet so often we can share the gospel one minute and then use our tongues for evil the next. And Lord, we pray that with your help, we would immerse ourselves in your word and in who you are so that you would control our tongues, that the words that we speak would bring grace to those that we speak to, and by doing so that you would be glorified. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.